We'll turn again to Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13, uh, from verse 31 to the end of the chapter, Jesus' sorrow over Jerusalem. Last Sunday, uh, we saw how Jesus uh, refused to enter into discussion with uh, someone who uh, threw up the question of how many would eventually be saved. Uh, He wanted to press home his challenge on the importance of entering into the kingdom of God. And we were thinking last time that theology, the, the thinking about God and how we serve him, is not to be an abstract, simply speculative exercise, but it is always practical. And when we make it something that's not practical, that's divorced, from our worship and service of God, then it's an offence to God. He'll have nothing to do uh, with that. I suppose the, the best-known time when that kind of thing reached uh, absurd lengths was when middle-aged theologians uh, were reputedly debating how many angels could dance uh, on the head of a pin. Uh, we should be eager uh, to discuss the Bible... Uh, eager to learn from it, but careful lest we wander away from things which have a concern for godly living. Now that's not the same, and this is important, it's not the same as simply keeping to things which are simple and straightforward to understand. And here, and I, I say this carefully, I think the The the, the most progress that we can make as Christians comes from the times when we begin to grapple with the doctrines that we find hardest to understand or hard because they challenge our assumptions about God and his ways. When we begin to think about these things, when we search the scriptures regarding them, when we discuss them, when we adjust our thinking and, importantly, begin to live by them, then we make real progress. I'm thinking about doctrines such as the doctrine of the Trinity, which is far more important, more practical than uh, is often thought. I'm thinking about the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Uh, we're in the middle of looking at that in our community groups as we go through the, the catechism together. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Now, some people want to dismiss that as simply being far too difficult. Or because some people object to it, uh, they say, well, we should stick to things on which everybody is agreed. Simply focus on the simple gospel. And that's a big mistake. It's a mistake because invariably... uh, People who work through the issues surrounding the sovereignty of God come to appreciate that God is much greater than the image they once had of him. And they also see that God's sovereignty has many practical effects on the way we live our lives, as we're going to see from considering this passage here together. God's sovereignty, God's rule over all things, uh, is a link between the two parts of the the section. Uh, We see 
Uh, in the first part, where Jesus is speaking about his mission, he speaks of it in terms of there being a necessity laid upon him that he must journey to Jerusalem, that his death uh, is ordained of God. And then in the second part, in Jesus' sorrow over Jerusalem, uh, there is also the question of sovereignty comes up in terms of some of the, the, the questions that it, it raises. Uh, Jesus weeping or lamenting, at least, over people that he knows are going to reject him. How does that fit together with the ordination of all things? How are we to mirror that as Jesus' followers? So there are three points that uh, arise from the passage. First of all, Jesus, although he was an undeniable force for good in the land, faced intense opposition from those in power to the extent that they wanted to kill him. Secondly, Jesus is strengthened by his knowledge of God's sovereignty, by his knowledge that God has ordained the path before him. And thirdly, we're going to think about Jesus' pity for those he knew would reject him. So first of all, the obvious point here is that Jesus was opposed there are these uh, Pharisees come to Jesus and they say to him, leave this place, go somewhere else because Herod wants to kill you. Some people have thought that the Pharisees who came uh, were acting in Jesus' interests, that they wanted to preserve him. I think that's unlikely. I think that Jesus assumes that they are envoys of Herod because he tells them to go back to that fox, Herod, uh, with a message. Herod was a control freak. Uh, He would have been alarmed at the prospect of Jesus' popularity. Uh, He'd already put John the Baptist to death because John had spoken out against his own uh, personal life. And Jesus uh, was equally, if not more, outspoken than John himself. And Herod would have seen Jesus as a threat uh, to domestic stability and to his own uh, popularity. So it's quite possible Herod would have wanted to eliminate Jesus. So, notice this first thing. Uh, Opposition is not a sign of being out of God's will. Opposition is something which, uh, as Christians, we're we're told to anticipate. Notice also it's not necessarily a sign that we're within God's will either, that we're obeying God as as he would want us to do. Uh, There are Christians who do things in such a way that they rile people who are not Christians unnecessarily and create hostility. For example, if you're married to a a non-Christian spouse, then it's not really a good idea to to leave a pile of Christian tracts on the coffee table so that uh, they're inevitably under his nose all the time. Or to put your uh, Christian music up loud uh, whenever she comes into the room so that it'll have an influence. It's going to have probably the the very opposite effect. And a lack of sensitivity can mean that we can bring hostility on ourselves as Christians. Uh, Think of the way that, uh, for example, street preaching can sometimes be done in a good way, can sometimes be done in a bad way. Uh, Sometimes people can uh, get riled by hecklers if they're out in the open air preaching and come into a fairly abrasive confrontation and when that happens, it's not surprising that uh, the, the law uh, steps in. 
Peter, uh, when he's speaking about how we share our faith, makes this classic statement about the manner in which we're to share our faith. And he says, always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. So always be ready to tell others about Jesus, wherever and whenever. (coughs) Then he follows on with wise counsel. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So, opposition uh, is promised for Christians. Let's be sure that we don't bring opposition on ourselves because we behave unwisely or with a lack of sensitivity towards others. It must be for the sake of Christ doing things in Jesus' way. Herod was a particularly vile opponent of the kingdom of God. He had a fascination for the Christian message, but an unwillingness to respond to it, and ultimately a desire to snuff it out. We're told that when John was in prison, that Herod called on John on many occasions. He was attracted to John's message like a moth is attracted to the light. But he never responded to John's message. And of course, as we know, he eventually put the light out. He put John to death. Herod eventually uh, came face to face with Jesus. And we're told that this is something that he had wanted to happen. Uh, In Luke 23, uh, after Jesus was arrested and brought to Pilate, Pilate, discovering that Jesus was from Nazareth and therefore under Herod, Herod's jurisdiction sent him to Herod and we read when Herod saw Jesus he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him from what he heard about him he hoped to see him perform some miracle so Herod's one of these people who's wanting to be entertained by religion he has a fascination for the the fireworks the razzmatazz of religion The poignant outcome when Herod gets his opportunity is that Jesus has no word for Herod. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. He was an enemy to the light, and when the light of the world was before him, there was no illumination for Herod. Jesus had no fear of Herod. Uh, His emotion was one of contempt towards him. Go tell that fox. It's a strong expression. It's stronger than it suggests in in our own uh, way of using. We speak of uh, a fox being sly, sly Mr. Fox. It goes worse worse than that. It's an expression of being one of contempt. He's a contemptible fellow as well as being a sly fellow. It's the only example that we have of Jesus expressing contempt for an individual. Reminds us that the Christian doesn't have to be gullible or lacking discrimination. We're to be slow to judge. We're to be slow to come to a negative opinion of someone. We're not to express a negative opinion of someone for whom we don't have all the facts. But when someone or some group is clearly devious, destructive or devilish, we ought to say so. Jesus' words, do not judge, clearly don't forbid us from calling out people like Herod, as Jesus does here. Jesus faced opposition, but in that 
Jesus was strengthened by his knowledge of his Father's ordering of all events, of God's sovereignty. He's not intimidated by the threat to his life. He is not cowed into going somewhere less dangerous. He doesn't decide to keep his head down and avoid uh, annoying people who are uh, against the kingdom of God. Jesus knew that his heavenly father's purpose must stand and therefore no one, not even Herod, with all his power can blow him off course. The words that Jesus uses, reach my goal, uh, must It cannot be showed that there's a divine necessity propelling Jesus. In other words, uh, providence, that uh, sovereignty word that means simply that uh, God rules and orders everything that comes to pass, was a comfort to Jesus. He's committed to carrying out fully God's appointed calling for him. I will drive out demons... And heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I will reach my goal. Now the expression today, tomorrow and the third day I think it's best to simply understand that as uh, a short period of time. And then the fulfilment, the, the death of Jesus, his resurrection. The death was appointed to be in Jerusalem. Jesus indicates surely No prophet can die outside Jerusalem. It was ordained of God. It was purposeful. It was not accidental. There's a terrible sermon on the internet just now. Don't recommend that you listen to it from the minister at Mayfield Salisbury. Uh, I think it's entitled, Jesus Did Not Die for Our Sins. It's heretical. And he makes the point, or he he tries to make the point, that uh, Jesus... Uh, didn't go to the cross as a sacrifice for sin, but as a result of international pressures. Shocking. No one could say that unless he was quite convinced that the people in front of him had no biblical knowledge uh, to to, uh, show up that that is patently false. Uh, Peter, speaking in Acts 2, says, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's set purpose. And foreknowledge. How clear, how more, how more clear can you get? And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So the men who handed over Jesus bear responsibility for the wickedness. And yet, God had ordained, God had ordered that this should happen, that Jesus might bear the sin of his people. And Jesus knows this. And knows that until his goal is reached, He cannot be blown off course. He has come, according to to John, to destroy the works of the devil. Casting out demons is a sign of that. He's come to bring wholeness and show God's love. His healing miracles are the sign of that. You might have heard the saying, you're immortal until your work is done. Helpful saying, I think. It means that uh, God has a work for each one of us. And uh, we will be protected until God's purpose in our lives has been worked out. You see that in the lives of of many of the the Bible characters. Think of the life of Jeremiah as one example. 
Uh, Jeremiah, when God calls him, God makes it plain to Jeremiah that he is going to have a difficult uh, career. He is going to be opposed. People are going to to threaten him and to, to seek his life. But God says, I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 1, 18, 19. And then there's that famous scene uh, when uh, <coughs> King Jehoiakim uh, gets hold of the, the parchment containing the, the words preached by Jeremiah, uh, predicting the victory of the Babylonians and calling on the people to acknowledge this. Jehoiakim is filled with, with fury, and he's in his winter palace uh, by the fire, and the scroll is read, and after each paragraph he takes his knife, and with contempt he cuts off a piece of the scroll and tosses it into the fire. And then he commands uh, the, his servants to go and to lay hold of Jeremiah and to put him to death. And we're told, the Lord hid Jeremiah. Jeremiah would be immortal until his work was done. He had a, a work that was ordained by God, was ordered by God. He would carry it on. Paul the Apostle comes up against opposition and he is discouraged and he is encouraged by the ordaining of events by God, of the sovereign purposes of God. In Corinth, Paul is discouraged by the opposition of the Jews and the Lord comes to Paul and says, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. No one is going to harm you because... I have many people in this city. They're not saved yet, Paul, but they were elect from before the creation of the world. I have many people in this city. So, friends, we have a path that's ordained by God. If we are living obediently to him, seeking first the kingdom, then we go on today and tomorrow, and then the third day we will reach our goal. Because belief in the providence of God brings a stability to our lives and a commitment to persevere in his calling on our lives. So, if you are a Christian mother, you need to say, today and tomorrow and the third day, I'm going to bring up my children and I'm going to love them and I'm going to care for them and I'm going to point them to the Lord Jesus and I will carry on no matter how hard my calling is. And if you're a shop assistant, you say, I will serve people and give of my best and be helpful and pleasant and as full of Jesus as I can be today and tomorrow, and the third day, and all the days that God has allotted to me. No matter how tedious I may find it sometimes, no matter how difficult my boss is, this is my calling, and I'll persevere in it. And we all say, no matter what God puts in my way, no matter whether it's health or lack of health, prosperity or poverty, I'm going to live for his glory. 
And I'm going to share his gospel today and tomorrow and on the third day until I reach the goal of God for my life. And nothing is going to stop me from doing that. That's the energizing power of belief in the sovereignty of God, that God has ordered our lives. He has a calling on his people. Now the third section, the, sorry, the second, the final section is most moving because we have this well-known picture of the Lord lamenting over people who are going to reject him. Jesus was eager to bring the people of Jerusalem under his sheltering wings, under the wings of his salvation, like a hen drawing in and sheltering her chicks. But the people of Jerusalem, by and large, rejected their Messiah. The sad contrast, I was willing, you were unwilling. And because, of course, of the Saviour's willingness, their rejection is all the worse. They are all the more accountable because Jesus is ready to receive them. And, of course, uh, one day Jesus will say to those in that position, have your way. He says here, your house is left desolate to you. You love the temple. Have the temple for all it's worth without me. And of course the temple, without the God of the temple, is an empty shell. It's like, you know, you go back to a place that has lots of childhood memories where you're happy, where there are friends, and where uh, there are lots of pleasant associations, and it's changed. And it's emptied, it's forsaken. And hell will be like God saying to people, uh, you want to live your life without me? Then have your way. Uh, You'll have your way eternally, unrelentingly. You will live without God. And without my goodness and my love and my restraint of evil and my compassion and all that is noble and just and kind and true. And yet Jesus is either weeping or near to tears as he says these words. And this, this has to raise a question, doesn't it, about sovereignty. Uh, how can he weep over people that he knows are rejectors, who are not elect? How can God wish that people would come to him and not will or ordain that they do come to him? Do you get the tension? That seems to be uh, a real tension there. Now, Arminianism, which is the belief that, uh, well, it's the non-belief in the ordination of God. God hasn't ordained whatever comes to pass. Uh, It would solve the problem by saying that man is the determining factor. If we don't want to come to God, God's too much of a gentleman to make us come to him. That sounds good. It sounds as though it's, it's defending human freedom. And we like that. But it doesn't do justice to what the Bible says. The Bible says that until we're born again, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no one who, do, who does good. No, not one. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him, says Jesus. So we have freedom as non-Christians. It's just that we're never going to use our freedom to come to God. Our freedom will always be used to reject God until we're born again. Does that mean God doesn't love those who will reject him? No, not at all. The Bible teaches that God has a special love for his own people. Uh, 
undeniably, having loved his own who are in the world, he gave, he loved them to the end. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So, just as I and any father has a special love for my own children, as well as a love for all other children, my love for my own children is always going to be greater than for others, God has a special love for those who are his children through faith in Christ. But the Bible also teaches God loves and shows compassion toward all people, even to those who reject his mercy. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Luke six thirty five. God is kind to ungrateful and evil men. So there's this mystery uh, that in a way that we can't unravel, God wishes that all should come to him, but at the same time he has not willed or ordained that all come to him. Some he passes over. There are some on whom his anger will remain, even though he breaks his heart that that is the case. And there are times, friends, where we just go along with what the Bible says, rather than try to collapse it into a neat formula. And that's what we do here. As far as we're concerned, it means that to believe in the election of God, we should never be drawn to a cold and a passionless attitude towards people. No matter how anti-Christian we think they are, no matter how convinced we might be that they're never going to accept the Lord Jesus, we must try to speak to them as though God was addressing them through us with the passion of Jesus, calling people to find rest from their labors, shelter from the wrath to come under his way. It means that the offer of the gospel is a sincere offer to all people that there is a saviour who has come and has died for sin. And if you will only repent, he is willing to receive you. He will not turn anyone away who comes to him in repentance and faith. And also the tears of Jesus should be reflected in us also. The solemn business when people don't respond to the gospel, isn't it? It's tragic. They're they're sealing themselves up to eternal forsakenness. If only they knew what was in their best interests. If only they didn't have the stereotype of what God is like and what it is to follow God. If only they were not blinded by, by pride. He would receive them. He stands ready to welcome the lamenting Jesus. There's a positive note at the end also, isn't there? Because Jesus speaks of Jews who will receive him and who will declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I think there is a a sense in which it's referring to the triumphal entry, but definitely goes beyond that to a much more significant response. Because the Bible tells us that, that there is a day coming before Jesus returns when there will be a mighty response from Jewry from the ancient people of God. Paul argues in, in Romans 11 that although God has set Israel aside in judgment during the present time, they are going to experience a, a mighty return to their Messiah. And Zechariah 12.10 will be fulfilled where 
We read, I'll pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So there's a warning and there's a promise as we close. The warning and the promise apply today. If you're unwilling to come to Jesus, he will reluctantly, tearfully turn away from us and leave us to reap the judgment that will overwhelm all who reject the Saviour. But if you receive him, he will come to welcome you and you will find an eternal home of everlasting joy with him and with his people. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for this this poignant picture that we have of our blessed Saviour lamenting over Jerusalem and its rejection of the one who had come with healing in his wings. Lord, we pray that we might have a similar compassion to those around us who do not know the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, uh, to become uh, insensitive to, to their plight. Give us tears, we pray, and help us to hold out, as Jesus held out with passion, the offer of the gospel, and to entreat people to come to the Saviour while they may. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.